0: All right, good morning, and uh, welcome to our next week of being scattered together, and uh, thank you for continuing just to be faithful and gathering in this new and unique way. It is uh, absolutely different and different for me, too, but uh, I trust that God is continuing to sustain and grow you in this time and, and using these services, despite the newness and the difficulty of them, to continue to grow your faith, to continue to keep you connected in Him and and reaching out and, and abiding in Him through the week. So thank you for doing that. Uh, we're going to come to a time now we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to Revelation chapter 3 now? Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, the letter to the church in Sardis. Read this passage for us. This is Jesus' letter to the church written down by the Apostle John. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven uh, spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Ask the Spirit's direction to us uh, as we look at this passage, and then we'll dig into it together. Spirit of God, we ask that we would have ears to hear this morning what you want to say to our church. Um, We trust that these words written down through your servant John uh, are are as much to us today as they were to this church in Sardis, and we want to learn, we want to listen, we want to have ears to hear, so please uh, break through every barrier, every uh, hindrance, every um, way that the enemy would seek to, to block our ears, block our hearing, would you Remove all of those things, Father, and allow us just to hear and then respond. May we be not those who just hear, but who are also doers of your word. Accomplish your good purpose in us through this word. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it is... Perhaps not the most well-known of sports, either to me, but uh, if you've ever been surfing through sports channels late at night or some Sunday afternoon, you may have come across this sport referred to as rally car driving or rallying. I don't know if you know about this sport. It's where a driver, along with a co-driver who has this list of detailed notes of every turn and bump in the course, speed along at speeds upwards of 100 miles an hour, through these winding twisting courses all through the countryside requiring a, an extremely high level of driving skill intimate knowledge of, of the road as well as how the car handles on those conditions and an absolute trust in the directions of that co-driver and and probably uh, a little bit of a comfortability with endangering your life that a lot of us don't have um, but Of all the other dangers that are associated with a sport like this, one that you almost certainly will never encounter is the danger of falling asleep at the wheel. You're just not going to hear about this. Like, not once in my admittedly very limited experience in watching this sport have I ever once seen the co-driver frantically reach over and grab the steering wheel from the driver as he's dozing off, saying like, dude, dude, and, and asking if he wants to switch for a little while and let him drive. I've just never seen that happen in the midst of this sport. But where, where you see that all the time and you hear about that all, all over the place is on road trips as you're driving through the prairies. You, you hear about that all the time. I remember, uh, for instance, uh, my years when I was out in Alberta uh, during my undergrad, hearing stories all the time of like near miss accidents or where people were literally like badly injured, even killed as they sleepily drifted off into ditches, or across the center line into in- incoming traffic. Um, that happens all the time. So what? why the difference? Well, I think pretty simply because where the danger is literally around every hairpin corner in something like rally car driving, forcing you to have this, this highly focused, uh, awake nature about how you're driving along in the prairies, where you have these long, straight roads with Miles and miles without a curve in sight, it lulls even the best of drivers into a a deep, cozy, (laughs) deathly sleep. So we're continuing in this summer teaching series through the book of Revelation, these first three chapters anyway, entitled Dear Church, where we're looking at these seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches through the Apostle John as he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. But while what Jesus writes to each of the churches is unique, uh, the letter to the church in Sardis is the first letter where Jesus lists no hardship coming against the church whatsoever, either from persecution outside, from false teachers within, like no hardship, which you'd think that would be like a really good thing, like, okay, these guys can just get to, to church, and yet for the church in Sardis at least, it's something that has devastating results for them. In fact, in the strangest turn of events so far, the greatest threat, the greatest problem facing the church in Sardis seems to come from the majority of its members, those whom Jesus says have the reputation of being alive, but who are actually dead asleep. And we'll pull that statement apart more and look more closely at it as we dig in and try to understand as best as possible what was going on behind the scenes that would lead Jesus to rebuke the church this way. And we'll look as well at what Jesus says they can do about it in order to avoid his, his coming unannounced judgment. But remembering, as we've said each week, that what Jesus writes to these seven churches is not intended only for them in their first century context alone, but for every church in every generation going forward. What I also want to spend time looking at this morning is considering where and how we could be in danger of this very same sleepy condition in our own lives and in our own church. If the goal of every lampstand is to shine the light of Christ in the dark world around us, to, to fall asleep at the wheel, as it relates in this case to living out our faith, presents a very real danger of ending up in the ditch or worse, and of shining our light to no one. And so, in order to help us with that, I, I want to look at what Jesus says to the church in Sardis about reputation versus reality. And then continually being awakened by the Spirit. Reputation versus reality, awakened by the Spirit. So if you've closed your Bible, you closed your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again to that passage? Revelation chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, follow along with me as we look at what the Spirit says to the church in Sardis. Okay, so let's look first of all, what Jesus has to say about reputation versus reality reputation versus reality now if you look at the second half of verse one you'll see that jesus begins this letter with words that he begins each of the letters to the churches with with the exception of the church at pergamum by saying i know your works i know your works and as we've said with each of the letters as the one who walks among the lampstands those lampstands representing each one of these churches Jesus' knowledge of each of these churches is firsthand. He, he's there in their midst. He sees and he knows. But in the case of the church in Sardis, Jesus' stated knowledge of their works, it seems is not intended at all to uh, say that their works are praiseworthy, but in order for him to say that he knows what those works truly are. He understands them for what they truly are. And, and we know that because of what Jesus goes on to say, in the the rest of the verse where he says you have a reputation of being alive that is from from all these as a result of all these works you've got this reputation of being alive but you're actually dead you are dead he says meaning essentially your works are praiseworthy to everyone except me for the the sense when, when you understand and you look back at the history and and what jesus is saying of this church in sardis they had this reputation at least among these six churches and probably beyond them, of being alive, by which I think Jesus just means uh, they have a vitality about themselves. This, this, it appeared to be a thriving church. Uh, John Stott notes this, no false doctrine was taking root in its fellowship. We hear of neither Balaam nor Nicolaitans nor Jezebel. Its congregation was probably quite large for those days and growing while its program doubtly, doubtless included many excellent projects. It had no shortage of money, talent, human resources there was every indication of life and vigor now works or 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 deeds writes daryl johnson reveal the true nature of a congregations as well as an individual's spirituality works reveal what's true about that and that's a statement i think is very much in line with what jesus says in matthew 7 for instance about a tree being known by its fruit or, or what James says, for instance, in James 2 when he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But, okay, follow that through. If that's true, and, and this church ha- had works that led everyone else to see them as alive, why would Jesus still say that they're actually dead? What's going on? Well, the answer to that question, I believe, is revealed in verse 2. Look what Jesus says there. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, two things I think we can draw from Jesus' answer there. First of all, by saying that he found their works not complete, I think Jesus means either the church had all these different uh, uh, projects that they initiated, promises that they made, which just were always perpetually unfulfilled, uh, uncompleted, so like the church had great initiative but no follow-through, which is, that's possible. Or what he means, which I think is more likely the case, they had, the, the, the motivation behind their works, all this stuff that they were doing, was primarily about bringing glory to themselves and not about bringing glory to God. Although, I mean, Jesus' clear instructions, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, our good works are meant to bring glory to our Father in heaven, that they'd see our good works and give glory to Him. Second thing that we can draw to Jesus' answer is when he says, your works are not complete in the sight of my God. Jesus is pointing again to the unique way that God sees things. He sees things differently than we do, which you see, for example, in uh, the anointing of the shepherd boy David to be Israel's next king. I remember what uh, God said to Samuel when he was comparing David to all these bigger, taller brothers. And, And God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Which means, altogether, although Sardis had this great reputation of being alive, that everybody loved and that that they worked really hard to maintain to everybody else, the one who walked among the lampstands saw things as they truly were, and he was not a fan. If you remember Jesus' devastating words that he had for the religious rulers of his day, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So when you understand that, you see how how seriously Jesus takes those who would claim to be serving Him, but are actually serving themselves. But here's the thing, what, what made this situation even more complicated and more messed up was that if we, when Jesus says to this church, wake up, what that shows us as well, what we're clearly being shown is that it wasn't just everyone else who looked at this church and saw that they were alive and had this reputation when they were actually dead. The church in Sardis had come to believe its own reputation and to love it and believe it as well. They, they believed they were alive when they were actually dead man, I think that reveals one of the scariest realities of all when it comes to falling asleep at the wheel as it, may, as it relates to our own personal faith, or uh, practicing what one scholar referred to as ecclesiastical sleepwalking as it relates to our life as a church body. Because when someone falls asleep at the wheel of a moving vehicle, just think about that, suddenly they lose all control and ability to protect the people in the car or themselves. They, they, they speed towards and don't even flinch or swerve at, at things that they're about to drive straight into because they don't see them coming even. So think about passengers in a vehicle like that. Passengers are, are in danger when someone is claiming to be serving God when they're actually serving themselves because you end up teaching all kinds of wrong ideas, wrong things about God. Which overburden those seeking to follow God and which lead those who, who should be, who need to be following God, further and further away from Him. It's exactly as Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when He talked about your teaching, you tie up burdens on people that they cannot possibly bear, and you make those who you want to become converts twice as much a child of hell as they were themselves. But the danger for yourself is just as real. Because, well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having a a reputation of being alive. Either you personally, as a church, corporately. I mean, I I pray that that would be my reputation. That would be the reputation of this church. Absolutely. But when when maintaining the, the reputation of being alive becomes the goal, becomes more important than the reality of actually being alive, well, then suddenly we prioritize the show of faith over the reality of it. And we prioritize that, and, and we prioritize that the goal becomes the praise of men over the well done of our Father in heaven. Jesus, again, talked about this exact thing with the Pharisees, Matthew 6, talking about how them, them practicing their righteousness before people in order to be seen. Jesus says, hey, basically, like, if that's your goal, if that's all you're seeking is the praise of men, then fill your boots. You, you'll, you'll get that reward in full. But, If what you're seeking is the internal, enduring reward of your Father in heaven, you need to do those same works for for the glory of God alone. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Which ultimately, it's leading every single one of us, listening to this and reading this letter right now, to answer a question for ourselves as well as for our church collectively. Answer the question, which one do you want? Which one do you truly want? Do you want the reputation of a living relationship with Jesus alone? Or do you want the reality of a living relationship with Him that results in a reputation of being alive in Him as well? Because the problem is, on the surface, both of those things can look exactly the same. They can look identical. But to the one who sees in in the sight of our God, they're very different. And only one is worthy of walking with Him in white and having Him confess our name before the Father. Which, by the way, that's, that's not at all in any way trying to suggest a way of earning uh, our standing with God. It's about the orientation of Jesus towards those who are truly His. But, which one? Which one isn't? Because what's crazy is that in every other aspect of life, we already get this and we understand this. Like, I don't just want the reputation of someone who is cancer-free. I actually want the reality of that. I don't just want the reputation of someone who gets good grades, who who is loved by my family, who remembers to put on pants in the morning. I want the reality of those things in my life super important. But what about with your faith in Jesus? Is it enough just to be thought of, to have the reputation of being a child of His whose name is written in the book of life, or do you want the reality of that? Because one is a transformed reality with a guaranteed and glorious future. The other might bring praise for the moment, but in the end, leaves us in the ditch. Okay. That's Jesus' call to, to really to choose reality over reputation. Because reality, when we really have a real relationship with Jesus, it will very often lead to the reputation. The last thing I want to look at is what Jesus says about continually being awakened by the Spirit. Awakened by the spirit. Now, my family will absolutely corroborate uh, this. I am not a morning person at all. Um, I, uh, I I hate it. I, I'm not one who likes to get up in the morning, and and so I'm not for a moment suggesting that I like things like alarms, wake up calls, or being woken up in general. Uh, But I am saying that I really appreciate those things and I'm grateful for them. Why? Well, because I know, I can freely acknowledge that on my own, I would never get up. I would never pry myself out of that beautiful cozy cocoon of pillows, blankets, and duvets on time if it wasn't for someone or something, a super annoying beeping sound, really loud hotel phone, whatever it is, extracting me, getting me up out of that environment to whatever I need to get to for the day. So in a sense, it's like being awoken like this, it's, it's a severe mercy, even though it is a mercy. And a clear example of this kind of merciful awakening, as it relates to our spiritual lives anyway, comes from a story you might remember from David when he was a little bit older, when he had foolishly committed adultery with Bathsheba, when kings are supposed to be going off to war and David stayed at home. For there, what you had was a spiritual wake-up call from the prophet Nathan when he came in unannounced into David's throne room and called out his hypocrisy, called out his adultery. and, and, And in a way, that was a merciful thing to him because otherwise, who knows what damage David would have continued to do both to himself as well as to others as he hid in that sleepy slumber, spiritually speaking. This is very much what Jesus is doing here to the church in Sardis as it speeds along across the center line towards destruction. His call, first of all, as we saw in verse 2 there, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, by which I think Jesus simply means, yeah, keep keep doing those good works that you're doing, but complete them. Make them complete by doing them for for my glory and and not just for you to try to build up your reputation. But then look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There's a few things going on there uh, in what Jesus says. One is a clear reference to this city's past. Sardis, uh, historically speaking, we know from archaeological digs and whatnot, this was a city built up on a high Cliff with steep, steep embankments on the side and, and high walls, which this city believed uh, made them impregnable to any attacking armies. They just thought, we're, we're set up here. And, and it's true, they were very hard to attack. And yet, not once, but twice, this city was sacked when they posted no watchmen along the walls at night because they were so overconfident and secure that nobody's going to attack us. Twice the city was sacked when soldiers scaled the walls and went into the city with nobody even guarding the city. I mean, it's the epitome of falling asleep at the wheel. So Jesus' called to wake up, which very literally means more, actually stay watchful, along with a reference to a thief coming at an unexpected hour, is very much meant to, to evoke this consequences historically, which they would have remembered, of sleepy, overconfident apathy that brought about destruction. He's saying, remember... Remember what happened to you physically when armies attacked you and you weren't staying watchful. Same thing here for your spirituality. Remember that. The other thing Jesus tells them there is, is what we ha- remembering what they received and heard. It says, remember what you have received and heard. And, and this, as we've seen in each of the letters, is now where Jesus' description of himself in the introduction to the letter now has bearing on what he says to the churches here as well. Because what had they received? What did they heard? Well, we already learned back in chapter 1 and verse 20 that the seven stars refer to the seven churches, but the seven spirits of God, Jesus says, has the seven spirits of God, which we first read about in verse 4 of chapter 1. Scholars tell us is actually a direct reference to the Holy Spirit himself. Now, we've got to remember that we're, we're dealing with uh, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, so it's using symbolic language to describe and communicate its message So in the same way that we saw in previous one, we've talked about writing to seven churches, and that number seven is a number of completeness, a number of perfection. Same thing here. Now, instead of writing to all the churches, the sevenfold Spirit of God is a reference to God's Holy Spirit. So take that information now, plug it into what we just read in verse 3 of our passage, and you'll see that in calling this church to remember what it had received, the Holy Spirit and what it had heard, the Holy Spirit's instruction, and then to keep it, which means literally conform your behavior to what you're being shown, and then repent, Jesus is making a direct reference to the presence as well as the direction of the Holy Spirit among them. Because God's Spirit, He's very much like that co-driver in rally car racing, he, except He's got the actual map of every twist, every corner, every bump in the road. And, and, and just as Jesus promised in John 14, uh, he, he's, he's leading us, He's directing us in the way that we should go, if only we'll listen to Him and follow His direction. If only we'll repent of our overconfidence that we know where we're going and listen to Him where He's leading us. And I think this is such a powerful reminder to each one of us who by faith, I pray, have that very same Holy Spirit dwelling in us today. Today, Jesus' promise was that his spirit would be our strength, our sustainer, our joy, our healer. He'd be the one that reminds us always of Jesus' words, of his teaching, and that he would be his very presence among us always. He'd be all those things, but he'd also be the one who, who perfectly knows the plan of our life and is leading us. He's like, come on this way. No, no, don't, don't turn that way this way. He's leading us, but the question is, are, are we listening to his leading and direction in our own lives? Are we listening to him? And are we listening to His leading and direction in our life as a church altogether? Are we following where He's leading us? Because the call of Jesus here is essential. is essential in order to remain awake and watchful in our lives. So, for instance, as Jesus was speaking of uh, our very life and our ability to accomplish anything of lasting value in our lives, in, in John 15, He uses a metaphor of vine and branches, The Spirit dwelling inside you and inside me and inside our church is the one who sustains that connection, sustains our connection to the vine and and makes that abiding possible and calls us to walk in ways that are going to keep us abiding in Jesus. Paul said clearly in Ephesians 5, which we looked at a number of months ago, that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, literally continually be filled, he said. But as he said earlier in Ephesians 4.30, we can also grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed. Which means, just as we're seeing in the church at Sardis here, falling asleep, falling asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking, and not listening to his guidance and direction. Just like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Not listening to his guidance and direction. He's he's trying to keep us abiding in Christ. And for every place... (laughs) As you think of your own life, as you think of the life of our church, every place where we see that that's something that's true, where we're not abiding, where we're we're falling asleep spiritually and not listening, in our life and the life of our church, may we hear Jesus' wake-up call this morning. May we hear it and listen and remember the spirit that we have received and conform our lives and our behavior to His loving, perfect direction for God's glory and for our good. When you think about Jesus' message to the church here in Sardis, one of the questions that we didn't look at, but which I think is essential to understanding this and how we can avoid this sleepy condition that they found themselves in ourselves is how did this church end up asleep to begin with? Like, How did they get here? And the answer, I think, leads us back to where we began this morning. We'll close with this. As I said, in, in rally car racing, the danger of falling asleep at the wheel is next to impossible because the level of focus, the level of attention required to to drive that twisting, turning course is necessary. But with long, straight stretches of road, such as you find in the prairies, the danger of being lulled into sleepy destruction is ever-present because the level of attention and focus required is just infinitely less. Just set it on cruise control and off you go. And it makes me wonder if, spiritually speaking, This is why Jesus didn't have to tell any of the other churches that we've looked at so far to wake up. Because in each of those churches, experiencing either persecution from the outside, uh, false teachers within, the level of spiritual focus and attention that they had seeking uh, the the help of God, seeking uh, the the leading and direction. What do we do? How do we make it through this? was just so intense. There was no danger of them falling asleep. It was next to impossible. But for a church like Sardis, Experiencing no intense persecution, no false teachers from within, actually nothing, no state of difficulty coming against them. The relative ease of their existence eventually made the danger of spiritual slumber, spiritual cruise control, of not staying watchful their unfortunate reality in the end. And think about this. Given the reality of the similarities between the church and sardis with our circumstances today with the church in north america where we don't experience anything near the level of persecution uh, that we're seeing in many other countries it makes me wonder if the message that jesus had for this church isn't the one that we need to consider and guard ourselves against most of all this is speaking most directly to us Because sometimes the way that Satan works to destroy a church is through intense, sustained persecution from the outside. Sometimes it's through fierce wolves, false teachers from within. But sometimes the way Satan works to destroy a church is by removing any threat whatsoever. So that in the relative ease of our long, straight, uncurving, beautifully sloping existence, we might be lulled into sleepy, overconfident apathy leaving us undisciplined in our faith ineffective in our witness and just as much in danger of destruction as any church under intense persecution from the outside my prayer for each one of us this morning is that may God God may grant us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches what he's saying to our church today what he's saying to you and to me May we be those individually as well as corporately who remain watchful, who remain alert despite the relative ease of our path. May we be those who just continue to press into our faith with Jesus, to to seek to to grow in our love for Him and others, of our knowledge of His his Word and service of Him and, and working for His glory as though we were in those seasons of intense persecution, working just as hard. And may we listen to and submit ourselves to the awakening direction of the Spirit within us, who is ever working to conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus and calling us into life lived and works done for Christ that display the reality of our our abiding in Him. That reality being something that will truly warrant the reputation of being alive. Amen. Amen. God help us to accomplish this.